Chapter 19 of the Oracle Concerning Egypt When the Lord enters Egypt riding on swift clouds, the idols of Egypt will rock at his presence, and the Egyptians' hearts melt within them. Now the Egyptians, too, are part of this Babylon conglomerate, Arch Babylon. Everything that is not Zion is Babylon. Now it's interesting that the Lord should enter Egypt, because Egypt is where Ephraim was born and grew up. It is the land where Joseph ruled under Pharaoh, as a type of the Lord's servant ruling under the Lord himself. It is a type where there was deliverance and salvation for Jacob's brothers, whom he brought and delivered from the famine in Egypt. It is a time where there was kind of a time of prosperity under Joseph. It was a time of safety and protection from the seven bad years, or from the seven years of drought. All of that's a type of things in the end time of the world. We'll see kind of a dichotomy here, very similar to that which appears to the people of Israel. Some repent and are delivered, and some don't repent and suffer destruction. The swift clouds is storm imagery again, which is day of judgment imagery, so this is ominous for the people of Egypt. Swift clouds would again identify the judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. Historically, the Assyrians went down into Egypt and cleaned it out. And the Egyptians were no match for the Assyrians at that time. So that serves as a type for a last day scenario of a similar nature. The idols of Egypt will rock at his presence. Again, idolaters like the Moabites, all of these peoples are clinging to the idols of various kinds. The Egyptians' hearts melt within them. It's interesting how the hearts of the wicked always melt. They go into a panic. They lose hope. Whereas the elect people of God, their minds and their hearts are firm and maintain faith and integrity and trust in the Lord. Verse 2, I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians and they will fight brother against brother and neighbor against neighbor, city against city and state against state. So kind of an anarchy or civil war happens to Egypt. When the Lord begins to judge Egypt, That's kind of a prelude, that's kind of the first event that happens. A breakdown of the society. Anarchy rules. Idolatry in a people causes confusion and lack of contact, a lack of harmony with God, and anarchy and civil war are a result of confusion. Egypt's spirit shall be drained from within, because they've lost touch with the source, the source of all blessings, which is God himself. I will frustrate their plans, and they will resort to the idols and to spiritists, to mediums and witchcraft. Plans are those of the wicked. They always have their own human plans and counsels, and that is what they follow, versus God's plan. And all human plans in the book of Isaiah come to naught. So instead of resorting to God, they resort to idols, spiritists, mediums, and witchcraft, which is the very opposite As we saw earlier, those spirits who will respond to people trying to contact them would not be righteous spirits anyway, because they're not supposed to do that. And so when they get information in that from the other world, in this manner, it won't be the right kind of information. It will be information that will lead them further astray. Then will I deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. A harsh ruler will subject them, says my Lord, the Lord of hosts. Cruel master is the king of Assyria as denoted by the word hand. In the book of Isaiah, there are two hands, the left hand and the right hand. 
the right hand being the Lord's servant who delivers, and the left hand being the king of Assyria who uh, subjects people, imposes his yoke of servitude upon them. He is the yoke, he is the rod and the staff that rule over the wicked. So there are rhetorical links identifying this cruel master as the king of Assyria. My Lord, the Lord of hosts, he who commands the hosts of men, of angels, nations, he has all power to do these things. Verse 5, the waters of the lake shall ebb away as stream beds become desolate and dry. The rivers shall turn foul and Egypt's waterways recede and dry up. Reeds and rushes shall wither. Vegetation adjoining canals and estuaries and all things sown along irrigation channels shall shrivel and blow away and be no more. Again, that is a covenant curse when the vegetation dries up. It's a drought situation. Also, it is a metaphor or an allegory of people. Waters or streams of people dry up. People are reeds and rushes, vegetation. As we see in many parts of Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about people as grass or weeds or things like that, trees. Fishermen will deplore their lot and anglers in canals bemoan themselves. Those who cast nets on water will be in misery. Manufacturers of combed linen and weavers of fine fabrics will be dismayed. Textile workers will know despair, and all who work for wages suffer distress. So the whole economy of Egypt is at stake here, and the whole economy collapses. The country kind of goes into a limbo. But it attests to the fact that it was a very prosperous country, that there were waterways, there was plenty of vegetation, and there were fine fabrics made. There were fish to be had. There was plenty of work. And now all of that that whole system collapses. Verse 11, The ministers of Zoan are utter fools. The political capital, Zoan. The wisest of Pharaoh's advisors give absurd counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, we ourselves are as wise as the first rulers? Where are your wise men indeed? Let them please tell you, if they can discern it, what the Lord of hosts has in mind for Egypt. So if Egypt were America, and Zoan would be Washington, D.C., and Pharaoh would be president, and the wise men would be those who advise him, those counselors. It's interesting that today, those elite peoples who do advise the president call themselves the wise men. The Lord will overturn their counsel because he has other things in mind for them. What does he have in mind? He has in mind an Assyrian invasion of Egypt, which they are not able to forestall, no matter how diplomatic they will try to be. What the Lord of Hosts has in mind for Egypt is something other than they planned, and it will put all of their wisdom to shame. Verse 13, The ministers of Zoan have been foolish. The officials of Nuf deluded. The heads of state have led Egypt astray. The Lord has permeated them with a spirit of confusion. They have misled Egypt in all that she does, causing her to stagger like a drunkard into his vomit. So the leadership in Egypt is the cause of the confusion, and the cause of this decline. But then, when you look at any political situation, the leadership generally reflects what the people are. So the people themselves, in a sense, bring it upon themselves. The drunkard imagery links Egypt to Ephraim. In chapter 28, the drunkards of Ephraim. Chapter 56, the drunkards of the Lord's people. It links it to the Lord's covenant people and to Ephraim. Egypt was the birthplace of Ephraim. He was an Egyptian. So typologically, Ephraim can also be in Egypt in that sense, 
and the prophets of the Lord's people can also be in the land of Egypt. Makes sense that way. They are overcome by a spirit of confusion. Again, that happens because of idolatry, because they've departed from the Lord God. There shall be nothing the Egyptians can do about it, neither head nor tail, palm top or reed. In chapter, um, I think, 9 it was, we saw that the head is the political leadership and the tail is the religious leadership of the people. Chapter 9, verse 15, the elders are notables, that is, of the Lord's people, are the head, the prophets who teach falsehoods are the tail. The leaders of these people have misled them, and those who are led are confused. Speaking of the Lord's own people. So there's some direct rhetorical links to the Lord's people there. Palm top or reed, too, has rhetorical links. Reed is Pharaoh in chapter 36, and palm top refers to the Babylonians, signifying kind of a worldwide thing. It can also refer to air defenses and sea defenses, if you want to look at it in another sense. Verse 16, In that day the Egyptians will be as women, fearful and afraid at the brandishing hand the Lord of hosts wields over them. Earlier we read, like fluttering birds forced out of the nest, so are Moab's women at the fords of Arnon, where the people appealed to someone other than themselves for help. They kind of became like women. Men became like women. And that's what's implied here. Men have become effeminate or worse. Actually, become gay. It's a kind of a gay society. Part of it is. They become fearful and afraid. Men should not be fearful and afraid. They should have trust in God, confidence. At the brandishing hand, the Lord of hosts wheels over them. The hand, again, is the king of Assyria, who is threatening Egypt with destruction and actually carries out the destruction, too. The king of Assyria conquers all the lands of the world, including the land of Egypt, the whole world, except for the people of Zion. The land of Judah shall become a source of terror to the Egyptians. Why? Because the Assyrians come into the land of Egypt through the land of Judah. So when Judah is taken and captured, then the Egyptians know that they're next. Just as if there would be an invasion of Europe, the conquest of Europe, what would be next? Well, we would also stand to be attacked at that point. Europe was overthrown. All reminded of it shall dread what the Lord of hosts has in store for them. That expression, what the Lord of hosts has in store, refers back to the day of judgment of the Lord's people. Chapter 2, for example. The Lord has a day in store for all the proud and arrogant and so forth. And that which people dread comes to pass for them. However, there is a redeeming side to this whole thing. In that day, five Hebrew-speaking cities in the land of Egypt will swear loyalty to the Lord of hosts. One shall be known as the city of righteousness. That day is the day of judgment again, and there are cities in the land of Egypt or city-states or places of refuge or places where there are covenant communities swearing loyalty to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. So there are, quote, Egyptians or people of Egypt. That's the case in any land. In the end-time scenario, there are people that covenant with the Lord in all the nations of the world. Here's a case in point. In this great nation that was the only power sufficiently strong, really, to counter Assyria, which collapses before Assyria, and that great superpower that Egypt was in that ancient time, two superpowers, Assyria and Egypt, that in that land there are covenant people of God inhabiting five cities or five city-states. One shall be known as the city of righteousness, 
signifying that these people are righteous, but also that it is a city of the Lord's servant in the land of Egypt. Kind of like Joseph in Egypt was righteous before the Lord. The servant personifies righteousness in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 41, verse 2. So he dwells in Egypt, at least for a time. And this could also be the city of righteousness that Isaiah talked about earlier, that becomes a harlot. Righteousness made its abode in her, but now murder is. So it could be the city that turns bad and suffers the consequences after a while. Or it could be a city that maintains its righteousness, or that was wicked and becomes righteous. Either one scenario or the other. In that day there shall be an altar erected to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. An altar signifying a temple of the Lord. And anciently there was, in fact, a temple built in the land of Egypt to the Lord God of Israel. There's three variant readings here. The Masoretic text has city of destruction, which makes no sense. The Dead Sea Scroll has city of the sun, which makes a little more sense. But in the Septuagint, there is a transliteration of the Hebrew word atzedek. It says polis atzedek. Polis is the Greek for city, and atzedek is a transliteration of the Hebrew hatzedek. So it is a construct of two nouns, city of righteousness. The Septuagint is the, the most early version of all of these. It comes from about 200 B.C. It's probably the most reliable. Another reason why city of righteousness makes sense here is that it is an instance of what I call Zion ideology, where you have deliverance of the righteous, destruction of the wicked, at the presence of the descendant of David, a righteous descendant of David. So the descendant of David has to be there somewhere, and this is where he is. He's the one that's called righteousness. The ancient Canaanite language was the same language as Hebrew. So these were Hebrew colonies in the land of Egypt, anciently. In a modern context, if we were to take this country as the land of Egypt, they might be covenant communities, people of Israel. It might be a type of that or an allegory of that. Swearing loyalty to the Lord of hosts may also imply, in a modern context, it may imply five states that will maintain the Constitution in its original form. You know, there's all kinds of possibilities. In Isaiah, the whole book can be superimposed upon a last day scenario. So in that case, Egypt is not Egypt back in the Middle East. Egypt is a superpower in the world today. If you read it as, say, America, then it makes all kinds of sense. We can't really say that it is, but if you really look at it closely, there's very few possibilities. It's got to be America, because it's the only superpower that fits the description. The ancient names become code names for modern entities, modern powers. Egypt is one of two superpowers, being Assyria and Egypt. There's no Assyria today. There's no Assyria by that name. In that day there shall be an altar erected to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a monument to the Lord at its border signifying that there's actually a temple built, as there was anciently in the land of Egypt, by Israelite colonists. In the land of Egypt, there will be a temple built where those who covenant with the Lord, God of Israel, will worship. They, that is the altar and monument, shall serve as a sign and testimony of the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Now the sign and testimony, we've seen those terms earlier, signifying prophets, the prophets and his disciples testify of the Lord, Testimony is sealed among the disciples of the prophets in that day, and 
the prophet himself serves as a sign and paradigm or type. He and his children serve as signs and portents to the people of Israel. So those are rhetorical links to prophets and the prophet's disciples. They shall serve as a sign and testimony of the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of the oppressors, he will send them a savior who will take up their cause and deliver them. So there will be oppression in Egypt. Why? Because wicked people oppress the righteous, as usual. Also, the Assyrians come into the land, or are threatening to come into the land, and eventually do, and clean it out and take it over. But the Lord sends a Savior who delivers them. The one who delivers them in the book of Isaiah is the Lord's servant, who is a forerunner of the Lord's coming. There are two Saviors in the book of Isaiah. The Lord himself personifies salvation and delivers them spiritually, and the Lord's servant delivers them temporally in a temporal salvation, physical deliverance. And that, of course, ties in with the word righteousness. One shall be known as the city of righteousness, the city of the Savior, of that servant. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. To know the Lord is to confirm the covenant that God has made with you, or that you have made with God. It means a personal covenant relationship that the elect have with him. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. We would say it's making sure that you're calling an election. So there are certain Egyptians, quote, Egyptians, who are really the people of God, people who covenant with the Lord God of Israel, who know the God of Israel, who know him face to face in that sense, in a covenant relationship that he confirms upon them in that day, in that time of judgment, in that time when that servant or that savior fulfills his mission. In fact, it is largely through the servant's agency that they reach that point. His job is to renew the Lord's covenant with the Lord's people everywhere in the world, not just in the land of Egypt. And as they do so, as they renew the covenant relationship with him and become the Lord's people, then eventually they can know him face to face, as Moses knew him face to face. Now this is also an instance where people who have assimilated into the nations and become known as Gentiles, as it were, or Israelites perhaps who were mingled among the nations of the Gentiles and became known as Gentiles, can resume their Israelite identity, can give up their Gentile identity and resume their Israelite identity. It's kind of like later on in chapter 56 where the aliens and foreigners come into the house of the Lord. They become the covenant people of the Lord while at the same time those who were prophets among the people of God are cut off from being the covenant people. The wicked of God's people are cut off from the covenant. They cut themselves off from his covenant, from his blessings, even while others are coming in. So it doesn't really matter who you are in the world, whether you're an Israelite or an Egyptian or anybody, you can become the covenant people of the Lord and enjoy the highest privileges. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. They will worship by sacrifice and offerings, and make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. So sacrifice and offerings are done at the temple. So this is temple worship, temple sacrifice, and they keep the covenants or the vows that they make. They not only make them, but they also fulfill them, it says. That implies that some make vows to the Lord and don't fulfill them, doesn't it? Who are they? Others of the Lord's people. 
we read earlier in chapter 1 about temple sacrifice and the multiplicity of offerings that were brought to the temple, and we discussed that, and they were all worthless because the people were hypocrites that made those sacrifices and came to the temple. So this is kind of contrasted with that. Those who were God's people who worshipped by temple sacrifices were rejected, and here those who were not God's people who become God's people and offer sacrifices are accepted of the Lord. Verse 22, The Lord will smite Egypt, and by smiting heal it. He smites Egypt at the hands of the Assyrians. What's the purpose? To bring Egypt back around. Healing in the book of Isaiah is synonymous with salvation. Chapter 6, verse 10. Seeing with the eyes, hearing with the ears, understanding in the heart, repenting and being healed, encapsulates salvation. So it implies that when the Egyptians are healed, they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand in their heart, and repent and are healed. So the smiting causes repentance. They will turn back to the Lord, as it says here, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. Healing comes upon repentance, or salvation follows righteousness. He will respond to their pleas, unlike the Moabites and the wicked, whose pleas he does not respond or the pleas of his own wicked people. He doesn't respond to their pleas. The fact that he responds to them means that these, quote, Egyptians are, in fact, the people of God. Verse 23, In that day there shall be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyrians shall come to Egypt, and Egyptians go to Assyria, and the Egyptians shall labor with the Assyrians. Anciently, Egypt was in the south, Assyria in the north, and the highway led through Judea, or the promised land, land of Israel, from the one nation to the other. This highway is also mentioned in chapter 9, which is the highway over which the ten tribes return. So that's a link, a rhetorical link. It's also mentioned in chapter 35, the way of holiness, which is the highway by which the Israelites return from exile. In effect, all of these nations become covenant peoples of the Lord. The remnants of Assyria are the ten tribes, and in Egypt, there are the people of the Lord, those who covenant, who have prophets, as we've mentioned now. And so they all begin to have liaison with each other and become a united people. The Egyptians laboring with the Assyrians implies that these Egyptians, who know God and, and whom the Lord knows, will be instructing those ones who come out of Assyria or who are in Assyria. That is, the Assyrians who survived the destruction. We have the one group instructing the other. If we're Joseph in Egypt, here in America, then we will do missionary work among the Russians or people of the ten tribes. That's a possible scenario. We will labor with them. They will come here and we will go there and so on. Verse 24, That day Israel shall be the third party to Egypt and to Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. The midst of the earth, of course, is in Palestine, between the two nations, anciently, but also today, it's still the midst of the earth. Yet it will be the third party to Egypt and to Assyria. The Lord of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This is a wonderful phrase, because it identifies three distinct groups of people who are the covenant people of the Lord. Egypt, my people, implies my covenant people. It's the covenant formula. So those who survive of the nation of Egypt at the end of the world, they become his covenant people. The blessing also implies 
covenant keeping. There's no blessing without covenant keeping. So these people inherit a very blessed situation. They live on into the millennial time of peace. Becoming my covenant people implies making a covenant like the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt, made covenants with the Lord in the Sinai wilderness and became his covenant people and he became their God. Assyria, the work of my hands, the work of my hands appears elsewhere as well. 60.21 says, Your entire people shall be righteous, they shall inherit the earth forever. They are the branch I have planted, the work of my hands in which I am glorified. They are the covenant people of the Lord for sure. In chapter 29, verses 22 and 23, it talks about Jacob, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, when he sees among him his children, the work of my hands, hallowing my name, devoted to the Holy One of Israel. So again, they are the covenant people who return from exile. Assyria, the work of my hands, then, would be the covenant people of the Lord, but those who come out of Assyria. There shall be a remnant out of Assyria as there was for the Israelites when they came up from the land of Egypt, says in chapter 11, verse 16. The remnant of the people who come out of Assyria become this Assyria, namely the ten tribes who were taken captive into Assyria, who now become the sole survivors of an end-time Assyria, of that very aggressive world-conquering nation. Israel, my inheritance, paradoxically, refers to the Jews. We have Joseph, Egypt, the ten tribes of Assyria, and the Jews in Palestine. Israel, my inheritance, refers to the third of the three, and paradoxically, it would refer to the Jews because they were always kind of distinct. They were called Judah, as distinct from being Israel, when the kingdoms divided into two, the northern kingdom called itself Israel, and the southern kingdom Judah. And so they never really had the name Israel after that. And now the Lord gives it back to them and says, you're Israel. <laughs> you're just as Israel as anybody else. But basically three groups of people constituting the Lord's covenant people in the millennium. Three distinct groups in three different parts of the world, in fact. 